0: Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host Daniel Roberts and I'm here with my father George and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 9, Pythagoras and Greek Democracy. If we leave Athens and travel east across the Aegean Sea to the small island of Samos, off the coast of Anatolia, we meet one of the most influential men from archaic Greece. His name was Pythagoras, and he is someone we either all recognize by name or recognize his famous math equation taught to all students in school. For it is Pythagoras who invented A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Now this might seem like it's just a story about some guy who knew math, But this is a much deeper story. For starters, we have to dive into why it is that Pythagoras was able to study math, while the rest of Greece was engulfed in wars and famine. To do this, we have to talk a little bit about Samos. Now, Samos was an Ionian city, or rather a colony, and Samos was founded by the Ionian Greeks who fled the mainland during the Dorian invasions. Samos is almost parallel with Athens. If you drew a line across the map from Athens to the other side of the Aegean Sea, you would cross the island of Samos. Now this meant that the island was far enough away from mainland Greece to avoid all of that war and conflict. This allowed the people of the island to live in relative peace and harmony. But peace and harmony on their own don't equate great mathematicians. Now because Samos was right off the coast of Anatolia, which was home to the Lydian Empire, the inhabitants were in contact with eastern cultures. Specifically the Persians and the Sumerians. All of the knowledge of the old civilizations of the Middle East were shared with the Greek men of Samos. If you combine the relative wealth and prosperity and peace of Samos... With the intellectual knowledge of the Middle East, you get a lot of free time to ponder wonderful ideas about nature. There were many philosophers in the Ionian colonies, and it was all because of these circumstances that someone like Pythagoras had the time and capability to develop such knowledge. Now that isn't to say that everyone on Samos was rich, but Pythagoras was from a wealthy family. Now from what we know... Pythagoras was a very handsome and charming individual. People liked to hear him speak, and they wanted to be around him. Pythagoras's studies weren't limited to science and math. He was also obsessed with religion and philosophy. He was particularly interested in the Orphic religion, which was an ancient religion in his time, one that had almost completely fallen out of practice. The central focus of Orphism is the suffering and death of the god Dionysus at the hands of the Titans, which formed the basis of Orphism's central myth. Now, according to this myth, the infant Dionysus was killed, torn apart, and consumed by the Titans. In retribution, Zeus struck the Titans with a thunderbolt, turning them to ash. And from these ashes, humanity was born. In Orphic belief, this myth describes humanity as having a dual nature, body inherited from the Titans, and a divine spark or soul inherited from Dionysus. In order to achieve salvation from the titanic material existence, one had to be initiated into the Dionysian mysteries and undergo telete, a ritual purification and reliving of the suffering and death of the God. Orphix believed that they would, after death, spend eternity alongside Orpheus and other heroes. Now, Pythagoras would go to the public square, and he would get into lengthy debates over the human soul, politics, and even mathematics, but it wasn't enough for him. And he soon became bored, bored of the same old conversations and arguments. Around the year 530 BCE, Pythagoras left his home in Samos and traveled to the ancient kingdom of Egypt. Now, When he made it to Egypt, he was able to learn from the old priest, and they taught him even more knowledge in mathematics and geometry. It was the highlight of his life, and he had thousands of ears and knowledge at his fingertips. In the eyes of Pythagoras, Egypt was an old place, with ancient structures and thousands of years of history. Now that's coming from a man who lived 2,500 years ago. Kind of shows you how old Egypt is. Here Pythagoras became a true lover of wisdom. And it is here that we get the word philosophy. From the Greek word philo, love. And Sophia, wisdom. But it was also the end of the empire's lone reign. And violent neighbors to the east were threatening the sovereignty of Egypt. They were wonderful years for Pythagoras, but he was quickly forced to leave the kingdom and set sail for safer land, as the growing empire in the Middle East was threatening to destroy Egypt. Unfortunately, Pythagoras did not make it out in time, and he was captured by the invaders, and he was taken back in chains to the heartland of the Middle East as a prisoner. While he was a prisoner in Babylon, Pythagoras impressed his overlords and he was quickly singled out and brought before the elites of Babylon to teach them the secrets of philosophy and mathematics. He so impressed his overlords with his wisdom of Orphism and geometry that he was eventually set free and escorted out of the Middle East and allowed to travel back to his home island of Samos. And when he arrived back home, he had so many stories and lessons to share with his countrymen that he was almost overflowing with excitement. He was ready to start a following so that he could create a new society of peace and knowledge where people could discuss scientific topics in the public markets and not worry about greed or war. Unfortunately, the Samos he remembered when he left was no more. The government had grown extremely corrupt, the public buildings had fallen into disarray and the people were unruly. This was not the place to set up his new utopia. Pythagoras wandered his home for a short period before giving up on the place entirely. There was nothing here left saving. Pythagoras hopped on a boat and traveled west, skipping mainland Greece entirely and landing on the southern shore of the Italian peninsula, in the polis of Croton. Croton was so far, unaffected by the wars of the east. Pythagoras started spreading his word of peace and harmony and how a society can prosper with knowledge and science. He even preached the word of Orphism. For if a person could fully embrace Orphism, they would no longer fear death and could spend the rest of their life learning and teaching and creating a new and better society. Pythagoras traveled the city and spread the word of science and philosophy and even became a vegan, not eating anything that came from an animal. His followers soon became detached from personal belongings and followed Pythagoras like some would follow a prophet. To be honest, we do not have any of Pythagoras' original texts or teachings. In fact, we wouldn't even know about him if it wasn't for a later philosopher named Plato who traveled to southern Italy and met followers of Pythagoras. It is said that Plato was so moved by Pythagoras' teachings that it formed his greatest written work. Plato's Republic, which centralized around equality, education, and harmony. Pythagoras has been a very controversial figure in history, and many attribute his teachings to that of something similar to Marxism or even Stalinism. Now you can easily take this man's teachings as naive, but you cannot deny the science behind his arguments. He spoke about the earth being round, or spherical actually. He talked about the earth revolving around the sun, and the moon revolving around the earth. Pythagoras was obsessed with the movement of the planets, and even argued that planets gave off a musical note as they moved through the cosmos but his greatest achievement was that of geometry. It is his understanding that the square of a right-angled triangle will always equal the sum of the square of the other two sides. This is a crazy discovery, because it shows that he was truly pondering the equation. He was visualizing the numbers and the lengths of the triangle from different perspectives than the three lines that made up the triangle. In 510 BCE, The neighboring city of Croton invaded the city. And due to the fact that everyone was peaceful and loving and rejected war, basically they were all hippies, they were easily defeated. The marauders came into the city and burned everything. It was a bloody conflict. One that the Pythagoreans could not win. As they were a peaceful group. That isn't to say they didn't put up a fight though. But there was no way they could defeat their enemy. A final meeting was held in a house with Pythagoras and his surviving followers to discuss how were they going to get out of this mess. And while they were meeting to discuss this, the bad guys showed up and set the house on fire. It is said that the followers of Pythagoras laid their bodies down on the burning floor, Creating a path for Pythagoras to walk across to get out of the building. And when he finally escaped and realized that all of his followers had sacrificed their lives for him, he committed suicide. However, others say he actually escaped and lived the rest of his life trying to spread his teaching to smaller communities. So remember that anytime someone says a squared plus b squared equals c squared.
1: A common misconception is that America has a democracy, when in fact the American government is not a democracy, it is a republic, and it is actually based off of the Roman Republic.
0: My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this... Under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States? He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast.
1: Back in Athens, Pleistestratos, Solon's cousin, was working very hard to become a dictator. Pleistestratos was already famous in Athens as he had fought in the war between Athens and Megara over the island of Salome. While traveling through the countryside, Pesistratus found a tall, beautiful woman and dressed her up as Athena. He then hired her to ride a chariot into Athens, carrying Pesastratus and his new bride into the city. Even though his marriage didn't last long, his effort for showmanship to the crowds of Athens had a lasting effect. The people loved him. Pleistratos set up a system that granted loans to small farmers. He set up circuit judges who would travel the countryside and hear the cases of the average worker and represent them in court. Too many poor farmers were being taken advantage of by the oligarchs and the rich elites. And Pleistratos was bringing them justice. It is said by Herodotus that Pleistratos respected the constitution created by his cousin Solon. But he made sure that all of his friends held the highest office and never let go of it. He also cleared sacred land of private homes and created public forums for the average citizen to gather and discuss political reforms and topics. Under Pleistotos, many public temples were erected. When you picture ancient Greek buildings with their large Corinthian pillars, this is what we are referring to. These were massive temples, and they were dedicated to Zeus and Athena, and everyone was invited to pray in them, not just the rich. Plesistratos' secret to success was keeping the people happy. He was good at his job. That Several centuries later, Aristotle wrote about Plesistratos and said that by definition he was bad, because all tyrants are bad by nature. But everything Plesistratos did was good. So, he is the only good tyrant. Paisisatros had actually made a lot of enemies, particularly the rich oligarchs. As long as he was stealing from the oligarchs and giving to the poor, he was safe. But Paisisatros fought for power. He worked his way into a place of influence, using his skills in showmanship and charismatic speaking, as well as showering the poor and general population with perks and benefits. But he knew the game, He knew how to play both sides. In 527 BCE, Pisistratos died and power was handed down to his sons Hippias and Hipparchus. And the flair that made Pisistratos so great was gone. And a new generation of entitled dictators took over. Pisistratos' son didn't understand how important it was to keep the people on your side. At first, everything seemed to be fine. In fact, the next 10 years for Hippias was pretty stable. This system his father had built for them was pretty solid. Hippias continued with the public buildings and erected many more temples to the gods. Sculptures and musicians were brought in from all over the land to bring the arts to the people. All of this funding came from the taxpayer, of course. In 514 BCE, Hipparchus was ambushed by two assassins, and a sword was run through his stomach. The assassination shocked Hippias. From this moment on, the tyrant went from a passive tyrant who splurged on the people recklessly while spoiling himself, to a wicked and cruel tyrant who wanted to punish those who went against him and torture those who got in his way. You might think that this assassination was carried out for political motives, but it is very likely Hipparchus was killed for personal reasons, involving a dispute between one family and another over an insult and personal defamation. After the assassination of his brother, Hippias traveled around town with a bodyguard next to him. He was constantly suspecting everyone of attempting to kill him, and he grew paranoid for good reason. In 511 BCE, the Spartan king Cleomenes traveled up to the city of Athens and marched into the city. With the might of his Spartan soldiers, he forced Hippias out of office. Hippias was ready to lead a counterattack when the Spartan king Cleomenes captured Hippias' family and forced him to surrender. Hippias agreed to surrender his powers and leave the city in exchange for the freedom of his family. Just like that, the Athenian tyrant was gone. But now there was a Spartan king in Athens, and this wasn't going to stand. The Spartan king quickly found himself surrounded by a bunch of angry Athenians. The crowd started to grow bigger, and Cleomenes and his Spartan warriors were forced to retreat to the Acropolis, the highest ground in Athens. As the angry mob grew in numbers, it seemed that the whole of Athens descended upon the Acropolis, and the Spartan king couldn't help but look down at the sea of angry people with swords shouting for his head. The Spartan phalanx could easily hold their ground against the Athenians, but there was very little water on top of the Acropolis. In fact, there is no water on top of the Acropolis. And after the third day, King Cleomenes of Sparta surrendered. After the Spartans marched out of Athens, the city was left without a leader and only an angry mob roaming the streets. What do you do in a situation like this? The mob had no way of properly governing the city like Athens, and without some form of leadership, it was only a matter of time before they tore each other apart. This left the people desperate for a leader, but also left a vacuum for a strong man to rise to power. This could go very well or very bad, and they had very little time to fill the vacancy. In 507 BCE, the people invited a man back to Athens who had been expelled only a few years earlier. His name was Cleisthenes, and Cleisthenes was a nobleman from a clan that had been banished from the city, but he was the people's choice. The fact that the people wanted him in the first place shows he was important enough to be thought of to rule the city and get them out of this mess. Cleisthenes took his new role to heart and immediately began dismantling the corruption that plagued the city under Hippias and Pleistratus. Cleisthenes sat down and created the first governor of the people for the people and by the people the result of Cleisthenes' hard work was the world's first democracy. This work not only stemmed the power of the oligarchs, but also united and empowered the people from all of the regions of Attica. One of the fail-saves Cleisthenes set in place was the ability for the people to vote a citizen out of the city. If the situation arose where it was obvious a super-rich person was getting ready to seize control of the city and become a tyrant, The citizens of Athens could vote to expel that man. The person expelled was only gone for a year, and his property and ventures were left in place, but this year allowed the city to stabilize. The ultimate decision for almost everything was left in the hands of the General Assembly, in which every male citizen had just one vote. The old councils of the rich and powerful, who used to govern over the city, were still there. They were never dismissed but they were never able to decide on anything. The old councils could bring suggestions to the General Assembly, but then the people would have to vote on whether or not to pass a motion. For the first time ever, the average citizen had control over their own lives. This new and radical way of governing was very appealing, especially with the Greek culture of independence. However, a lot of Greek citizens from neighboring Polis looked at Athens as a city ruled by an angry mob. How could they get anything done if everyone had a say? Surely the system could not sustain itself. Yet Athens did not rip itself apart in a civil war. Instead, Athens flourished. It turns out having a free and open society allowed trade and commerce to flourish. And very soon Athens became a powerhouse in the Greek world. In the year
0: 505 BCE, On the island of Sicily, tensions were growing strong between the Greeks and the Phoenician colony of Carthage. Now, if you remember that mainland Greece had a long-lasting feud between the Dorians and Ionians, you should rest assured that the colonies in Sicily kept up that age-old tradition. The Ionian colonies in Sicily hated the Dorian Greek colonies and vice versa. In fact, the Ionian colonies in Sicily had fairly good relations with the natives living on the island. However, the Dorians took a more aggressive tone with the Sicilian natives and had grown quite hostile with them. Conflicts between the Ionian and Dorian colonies boiled over and soon they were in open conflict with each other. The Dorians ended up triumphant and the Ionians became vassals to the Dorians. The Dorian Greeks then became even more aggressive to their neighbors and this prompted the response from the Phoenician colonies on the other side of the island. The Dorian's aggressive behavior towards the Phoenicians led to an all-out war between the Greek colonies in Sicily and the Carthaginian Empire. The thing to understand about the Phoenician colony Carthage is that it wasn't just the colony anymore. The homeland of the Phoenicians had recently been conquered by a growing empire in the east. In fact, many kingdoms and ancient empires in the east were falling to the great Achaemenid Empire. Assyria was the first to fall. Then Babylon, then Egypt. Soon after Lydia fell as well. Even the Ionian cities on the coast of Anatolia fell to the growing empire in the east. And when the home of the great Phoenician people fell to the Achaemenids, Carthage became the dominant Phoenician city-state. The best analogy for today would be to compare America and England. England was the motherland of America, but America is now the dominant power. Well, it was the same with Carthage and Phoenicia. Only when Phoenicia fell to the Achaemenids, Carthage remained in good standing with them. And when Carthage went to war with the Greeks on the island of Sicily, they called on their eastern friends for help. Now you might be asking yourself, who are the Achaemenids? I've never even heard of the Achaemenid Empire. Well, you might know them by a different name. You see, most people refer to the Achaemenid Empire as the Persian Empire. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.